0: Welcome to the School of Laughs podcast, brought to you by SchoolofLaughs.com. Whether you're an aspiring comedian, a part time pro, or a speaker who wants to become funnier, this is the podcast for you. We'll break down tools, tips, and techniques to help you get bigger, better, and more
1: bookable. And now, here's the show. Welcome to the podcast. Rick Roberts here, and I've got a good one today. It was really fun to catch up with Thor Ramsey, Thor, if you don't know, Christian comedian who produced this film called Church People that came out this uh, year, which is really good and it's about to be released digitally and on DVD in September. So I thought it was a good time to catch him and catch up with him and find out a little bit about... Uh, not only the movie, which we definitely talk about, we talk about you know the tone he was trying to write it with and, and what it takes to put a movie into the church market, and the different types of movies that go in there, but we talk about how he got started in comedy and how we first met uh, through a show called Bananas, which was shot in Columbus, Ohio, my old stomping grounds, and how that was actually an answer to a prayer that I prayed. He didn't know the story, so I caught him up on that at the beginning. We talked a little bit about his comedy career, and then we get into the movie. So if you just want to hear about the movie stuff, you can shoot about halfway through it. But if you want to hear about Thor and kind of see his uh, framework for getting to the point where he wrote the movie, I think the whole thing's worth listening to. So we'll jump in in, in literally 10 seconds. I want to say a shout out to Rhonda Corey, the Patreon sponsor for this episode, and her show, Talk is Cheap, which you can find on Facebook. Is uh, about to hit a hundred episodes, so Rhonda, congratulations on uh, doing that! As a guy who's put out almost 250 podcasts, I know that it's a lot of work, but I know you have fun doing it, and it's a fun thing to watch and listen. So, if you haven't checked out the uh, "Talk Is Cheap" video program she does on Facebook, you got to you got to check it out. Go ahead and search that her and get in there and watch it. Now, let's get into this fun interview with Thor Ramsey. Well, Thor Ramsey, thanks for joining me today on the podcast. How are things going, sir? Good, good. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I was excited. You know, about a month ago or so I got to watch the church people movie and we'll definitely dig into that today. And I thought you did a great job. And I know thanks, man. gosh, it's not a, none of that is easy. So we'll talk about the process and all that stuff a little bit. Um, but and, and also that it's gonna be coming out in September for people to download digitally or or, or get the yeah. DVD and stuff, which yeah. I'm excited September about. September third, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's amazing to me how many people still want a DVD of things. Uh, it's it's part of that hoarder culture that we have. Like I wanted my hands on it, but I'm kind of like that too, so I'm looking forward to that coming out.
0: Yeah, I'm surprised at the DVDs myself. So I don't even take them to shows with me anymore.
1: Yeah, I know. I I give them away, and people still leave them on the table. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, for people that have listened to my podcast for a while, I mean, they know I do clean comedy. I'm a Christian. But really, I want to say this up front before I forget about it. One of the big things that helped me kind of make that decision to stay clean was when we did bananas. And I, I can never remember the year that was, but that was three or four years that you were doing that. Is that correct? Uh, we did, uh, we, we actually did um,
0: three, and a half se- three and a half seasons. And they didn't, uh, we almost did the fourth season. For some reason, they didn't finish the fourth season. I think the, the economy dropped out, and they just didn't finish. the But I th- we did three full seasons.
1: Yeah, and that was its funny. I had just moved from Columbus, Ohio, down to Nashville. And, uh, and I always think sometimes we don't know uh, how things happen. So this is this is how I got to do bananas. Uh, A, somebody got sick, and I needed to find somebody to fill in like in two weeks' notice. So I was happy to do that. Well, that's funny. I wonder who got sick. I wonder who that was, huh? Yeah, I'd have to go back and see if uh, – who that was? But anyway, I had, I had just finished up like two weeks of these one nighters, where I was still doing some bar gigs and doing some clubs Tuesday through Saturday, and picking up all these other gigs, and uh, I was exhausted. And I, I had just moved to Nashville, and I was probably between uh Bowling Green and, and Nashville, and I, I really had reached a point where I was like, "I'm tired of doing this." And I, I pulled over. I remember pulling over on the side of the road and praying for like five minutes, like God, I think I'm funny, and I, I think that's what I'm supposed to be doing, but it doesn't seem like, uh, there's, there's much in it for the audience for me and I'm up for it. But what's, what's the next step? I had no idea. Oh, so you
0: were thinking about even going some other direction?
1: Yes. I thought, comedy? Well, either leaving comedy completely. If, if, if maybe these speaking skills prepared me for something in ministry right. or whatever, right. I didn't know. Right. And, uh, I did the classic, you know, send me a sign and help me be, uh, bright enough to see it and not just think it's right. another, you know, right. Mm-hmm. Five, six minutes later after that, I get a phone call from Lenny Sisselman who says, hey, uh, can you do a clean hour? They're looking for somebody to do a Christian uh, comedy taping up in Columbus, Ohio. And I'm like, what? That's the fastest answer to any prayer. (laughs) 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 And uh, and it's exactly what I was praying for. So I went up there, met you, did the show. And then through that, learned about the Christian Comedy Association and joined them. And you never know how things get started. So I didn't know if you knew that story at all. So I thought I'd throw that in there. I didn't yeah, well, that's so, great to hear, man, yeah, well, you just I just think you never know how you influence people and how your deeds are affecting other people, so right, it definitely yeah. affected me, whether I knew it at the time or not what it was going to lead to, and right and I, I've been connected to a lot of cool people from trickled down from that effect, so yeah yeah, so that that was very cool, and I enjoyed the taping and uh, it gave me kind of an insight into how some of these filming things work and how how you run a show and the early mornings, you know, you, you do a lot leading up to it, but I just remember hitting the, the radio early in the day. And yeah, we did some vignettes. We went to some of the guy had a bit about the engagement ring. So we went to a jewelry store and did some guitar yeah. stuff and just how the whole thing flowed really, really smoothly. And yeah. I think you're probably in second or third season at that point. So you had it right. kind of working. What was the, the impetus to get that going in the first place? And how did Columbus, Ohio end up being the spot? Oh, for bananas. Yeah.
0: Well, that's where the, the production company, which I think was, uh, guardian studios guardian. Yeah. They had a production company and they had their own, um, they actually had their own network there. And yeah. so they were looking to produce original contents and, um, man, it's been so many years. I'm trying to think of the poor guy's name right now, but, um, he's a really good guy. Uh, Oh, anyway, I, he came out to the Christian Comedy Association conference—I guess you'd call it—when we were in Nashville. We had it in—I uh, I, probably Franklin, I imagine, probably Sean De Pierce's church, if I remember correctly. But he came out to that, and uh, you know, stayed for the conference and approached me after the conference, and just said, "Hey, we're thinking about starting this comedy program called Bananas." and uh i i actually tried to get them to change the name
1: <laughs> yeah what, what would you have chosen
0: your <laughs> comedy was going Pure comedy. Pure comedy was the you know but they were stuck on the uh the tag appealing comedy for the whole family so okay. you know and in hindsight you know you, you struggle against this stuff but in hindsight i should have just embraced the entire bananas mindset at the, it, it would have been a better career move than fighting against it i tell you that <laughs> so Um, but that was, that was really the impetus of it was, and they even offered to put my name in the title bananas with Thor Ramsey was going to be the title, but because I was so embarrassed of the name bananas, (laughs) I told them not to. And now (laughs) I in hindsight, you know, there's no such thing as bad publicity. So that was really a dumb move to pull my name out of there. But, um, so that's really what, you know, I just, you know, ended up having meetings with them and, um, and I ended up, you know, one of the things I ended up doing is ended up really um, in one sense, giving them comedians to book Mm -hmm. because they had certain, you know, acts. And then they had, uh, believe it or not, they had turned down um, Bob Nelson. Oh yeah. 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 And I'm like, what? But he's had two HBO specials. Why would you turn down Bob Nelson? And well, there was one bit that they, that he did that they felt was just a little over the top. Like, well, just ask him not to do that. Right. It's that simple. So they're like, okay. And so they ended up rebooking Bob and he became, I think the first season he was one of the top, um, out of all the comedians they had that year, Bob was one of the top one or two, uh, most watched or most bought videos. Uh Um, and so, um, so anyway, yeah. So that was the minor influence I had behind the scenes there,
1: but, uh, I was curious about that, too, because I know after second or third season, I mean, the, the first one, you're like, oh, I got I got all these comedy buddies. I've seen him do an hour clean. I've got yep. no problem with it. And then the second season, probably same. And then the third season, like, I mean, a guy like me, you didn't know and I'm coming in. And uh, I think we only had to take one thing out of my whole set that I you know, I had slipped up and kind of did a joke that I thought a hey, little reference I didn't need to do. But you're looking right. at these outsiders coming in as a host. Did you care a lot? You know, because they had to do the editing and all that stuff. Or we, were, were you curious? Like, how are some of these non Christian or non,
0: you know, publicized? Now, most of the non Christian guys I was at least vaguely familiar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you didn't want to bring someone in and go, Oh, that was just a there was no way they could do a clean set. You, you, you had to know their act, right? Uh, at least had to see the, the video or something of them. So we had a few guys that came in that were just clean. Um, but bananas itself. Really, that's what it was. It wasn't necessarily a, this is all Christian comedy. Uh, though most Christians work, most you'd hope, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Christians work clean. But we brought in a lot of guys that were just um, guys that could work clean because that was the whole purpose of the show. It was just font, comedy for the whole family. Yeah. Um, and, it, and, and really, you know, again, I wish I, would, I wish I would have embraced it more, but kids loved that program. Kids loved it, and I still, i even now, so I just did a a music festival on uh Saturday in Wisconsin, a life fest in Wisconsin. Oh, yeah, yeah, and had this kid come up to me and he was like, I started watching you when I was four, (laughs) (laughs) but it was all bananas, yeah. They did, it's like, but because he had experience with it as a kid, I think a lot of times we don't realize it's actually more impactful. When you're a kid and you see something like that, they're actually, you know, if there were only more kids like that, but they're actually bigger fans than people who experienced
1: it, who were older.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: Um, yeah, at that, that age, they can really, they get into it. You know, we're doing VBS at my church this week and I'm, okay. I'm home. So I'm like, I'll volunteer to be the, the guy that does a sketch at the beginning. Oh, that's funny. And so yesterday, as, as soon as I got into it, you know, and I'm the guy that's clueless and I'm trying to learn the lesson for the week. And this kid just came right up to the stage He goes, You just don't get it, man. And then, <laughs> and I'm just thinking, This kid got it on the very first day. The little know? kid said that to you. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so our theme is like treasure. So they're all the treasure, yeah. and I'm a treasure hunter. And he's like, You don't get it, man. We're treasure. You're treasure. Oh. Like he learned that from the first three minute pre roll video. Oh, and so funny. today when I come in, he's like, What don't you understand today, dude? Like <laughs> he came right up to the stage. I'm like, But you're right. They, they soak it in, they get it. I mean, when I was a kid, any kind of comedy thing that made me laugh, I still remember watching these early sketches on TV. You know, Bob Hope had the special. You mentioned Bob Nelson. I remember Bob Nelson from the Bob Hope specials that he would do.
0: Yeah. Well, I remember, you know, like one of my, you know, I think most, at least from my generation, like Jerry Lewis. We we love Jerry Lewis movies just because he was so physical. Yeah. You know, so there was something about, uh, and I didn't, and cable wasn't as, well, I don't, we didn't have cable when I was a kid. So I didn't, we didn't get us just, there was no way to just see every Jerry Lewis movie that we wanted to. It was like, it was a rare occasion when we got to see a Jerry Lewis movie. So it was a big deal. Yeah. And even Don Knotts, I remember, uh, you know, the incredible Mr. Limpet. If people know that movie where he falls into the ocean becomes a fish, which yeah. you know, turns into kind of a, it was like a combination of animation and, you know, live action, but um, you know, and you know Don Knotts right up your
1: alley there. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I, I, I loved all that stuff early on, you know, the Apple Duffling gang rides again and all there that kind go. of stuff. So Tim, just, Tim Conway and all those guys. Yeah. All those great comedic actors. Carol Burnett's show was big when I was a kid. Yeah. I just, uh, I always, I always loved the show business aspect of it. I always loved comedy. Had no idea I was headed there, you know, down the pike or else maybe I'd have paid a little bit more attention early on, but. The ghost and Mr. Chicken. That was a big one. Oh, real big one. I've got a big thing right over here with that on yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for you, the one thing I didn't really think about till today, you know, even though we did bananas a long time ago, and I've seen you do comedy here and there and all kinds of stuff, I never knew where you started or how you got your start. Did you do comedy clubs for a while, then find the Christian? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Almost a decade, yeah. probably right in there. And then I wasn't walking with the Lord at that point, basically, long story short, but uh, got married and needed help, called out to God. And that kind of led me back into, you know, led, led us back to church which, uh, then actually I got my start with the prison fellowship. Oh really? Uh, yeah. Do you know Steve Geyer? I know
1: of him. Don't know him.
0: Okay. So, so I went to a, a Christian music festival and I only went to the music festival to see, cause they had Steve Guyer there. So I went to see Steve Geyer. He was the first other than Mike Warnke, mm-hmm. um, who wasn't performing at that time. I don't think, but, um, because uh, Mike Warnick was the only Christian comedian I'd ever seen or heard of, and I saw Mike two or three times live back in the day. But um, Steve Geyer was the first stand-up stand-up, That guy that actually did clubs before, and then did the church that I saw. And I talked to him after the uh, event, and uh, you know, told him my background and stuff. He says, "Let me give you a number." He gave you know, so I basically through Steve Geyer, called Prison Fellowship and uh it was in prison fellowship that i actually started doing comedy for the first time around you know it was like for christian purposes i'll Mm -hmm. say that wasn't necessarily a christian audience right because it was in prisons but um but and then i found like there's christian events i mean you do i never you know i knew there were music festivals but i didn't know you just did events at churches so that kind of opened up that avenue and then i You know, started getting booked in churches, and that kind of led into, uh, and then Christian Christian comedy is much more conducive to staying married and having a family. You know, because when you did clubs, you were literally gone. Well, you could be gone every day of the week, but one. Yeah. You know, you'd work Tuesday through Sunday back in the heyday, yeah. And so generally, you'd use Monday for travel, so you could literally not be home ever. Yeah. And, uh, and, and then Christian worlds, you really only gone on Friday or Saturday or both. And then you're home the rest of the week. So it was great. And and the pay was better to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, know, it's, so it was much more
1: family friendly in every way. Right. Yeah. I kind of found the same thing once, uh, you know, really about two weeks after I did the bananas thing, I'm like, you know what? I would be ashamed if somebody came to see me because they saw me on this and saw me doing anything else, you know? risque or whatever in the clubs I feel I would right. really feel like I let them down right right and just right. the more I cleaned it up even in the clubs then it offered me better positions and uh more opportunities all the clubs started throwing me all their corporate gigs and stuff and through that I learned oh, that wow. there was, you know yeah just other opportunities out there I didn't really understand how how clean I was uh when I wasn't even trying to be clean and I oh, cleaned it up funny. a little bit more and I'm like oh man that's you know I, I'm, I tell people I'm too clean probably for you so you might want to find somebody else and all if they, right if that's, they get that then I'm all right <laughs> but yeah, it does lead to a better life and a more sustainable uh, family for sure. I, I always feel bad for the guys, and you saw them too when you were doing the clubs—the headliners that were past their prime and not enjoying it, and taking up space for other comedians who might be on the rise. And then they're just complaining about everything, and they're not—they're not home. They're not a good husband, and, not a good. And there was a
0: sadness to it. You'd meet guys like so when you're—you know—we were in our—you know—I was in my 20s when I started stand up late twenties. I'm not going to tell you when, but uh, I was in my late twenties. And then, you know, within, you know, well, I I was working the road full-time within a year of starting. This is back when there was a comedy boom. It was like the housing market. I got in at just the right time before the market crashed. And I was working continued 42 weeks a year. And I just, you know, every year I was working at least 42 weeks a year for the next seven years. And then you'd meet guys, then you're in your early thirties, even you're meeting guys who are in their fifties and you just go, wow, do I want that to be me when I'm 50? Yeah. You know, cause there's just, there was a sadness to their lives because it was just basically, and then you'd meet guys. They were really only standups because of the lifestyle, not because they loved standup. It was a place where they could work one hour a day where they could loaf and drink. And that was really the key. To yeah the, the stand-up for them whereas you know like here i thought i thought everyone loved stand-up the way i did that had a passion for it that you know uh not that i didn't make mistakes along the way and and you know could have done things differently you know but the one thing i never regretted doing was actually doing stand-up you know so yeah. but you're just going the you, you is that Is that the life I want? (laughs) I know.
1: Yeah. If that's what's coming down the pike, I better get off the pike. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Well, you've you've done a lot of things, obviously, uh, uh, stand up. You've written books, you know, two or three books that I know of. Yeah. I've got a novel that
0: uh, uh, just got accepted. So that'll be coming out in the next. It's going to say they say it's going to take nine months, which I'm a little disappointed because I'm like, don't you just have a printer and paper? I mean, you got the manuscript now. Can you just, you know, run some copies? But apparently there's a whole process. But um, so that should be coming out in the next nine months or so. So I'm looking for I'm really excited about that.
1: Yeah. So of all the things that, that you got your uh, hands in, what's I they're all equally rewarding in different ways. But is the novel the thing you're most proud of about now? Well, no, the films still. Um, you know, I've
0: so I've done I've written 10 full-length screenplays now. And it's one of those things where you're going, and 10's really not I really feel like I need to get to 20 because just at 10, the the one I'm working on now with Brad Stein, Brad Stein are actually working on one together called The Revenge of Adam and Eve. And um I really feel like number 10 was there was just something different about number 10 that I felt like I had the system down in terms of the structure of the storyline and everything like that, of how screenplays should go. And there was just something about number 10 that clicked. It's almost like in standup, you know, you do, you, as you're beginning, you have no idea why people laugh at certain things. And then after you do standup for so long, it's like, you've got this, you have this joke that you might've been doing from the beginning and you don't know why people are laughing at it. But after you do stand up for five years, you're like, I get why they're laughing at that now. Right, because you understand that the structure and the setups and the you know there's just the technique and the structure are are really vital to when you're crafting anything. Um, yeah, you have to have the funny stuff in there, and I think there's an innate most standups have a, a sense of why people laugh at them. But here's the thing: if you have a funny person who doesn't understand why people laugh at them, they could never really become a standup because you have to take that everyday funniness that you know you have people who can make that You have people who they make people laugh in their everyday lives, but stand up is about taking that to the stage, and there's a, a a structure and an analysis to do that. So you know it, you've got to understand that to actually do stand up. So right. um, and it's this you know screen screenwriting in the sense there's a structure to it. Um, now it's always about you know the. Somebody said that. I don't know who said the whole idea. They're probably only you know, five stories or 10 stories. People just keep retelling. I don't know how many it is, but I go, I get that. I mean, uh, boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy yeah, gets yeah. girl. That's the standard romantic type of screenplay. And all screenplays have a structure. But um, it's just finding creative ways to retell those stories. Right. So that's really what it is. But you got to know the structure to do it.
1: So early on in those those first nine, you know, what were some of the mistakes that, as a guy who's written ten now, go, oh, that would have made a big difference going back and saving well, time and a couple um, story.
0: Yeah, it's it's about beats. That's the to me right now. I feel like that's the biggest mistake, and what I mean by that is, um, there's a great resource if you get a lot of people who are creatives listening to this called uh, Story Grid if you're interested in screenwriting or novels, I use it for both, but story grid is one of the best things I've read lately regarding the storytelling process. Uh, because one of the biggest things in story, the, the two big things that brings to you is like, you have to understand the genre you're writing for. Uh, like, you know, I write for the Christian market. So Christian films are a genre and every genre, comes with expectations you know for instance you know murder mysteries that's a genre so what what do you need in a murder mystery you've got to have a dead body you know got somebody has to be murdered there has to be a mystery to it if you don't have a dead body you're you're messing up your genre but the point they make in the story grid is that every genre comes with expectations and if you go well i want to write something out of the box and it's like you can be creative but if you do not hit the beats that people are expecting from your genre they will feel disappointed. Mm-hmm. And so that's why when people this is my it's not my debate but people that I differ in my viewpoint of Christian film. You know people say well you know uh like they'll say Up. You know the 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 movie the Pixar movie Up. That had Redemptive themes, etc., etc. So they could classify that as a Christian film. I'm like, you can't, you can't classify it as a Christian film because Christian film is a genre and it comes with expectations. And one of those expectations people that go to see Christian films have is to see a Christian character who is patently, cornily evangelical Christian in their viewpoint. The the entire film is that now. Um, Now, I think, again, how you do that is the question. I think Christian films have, um, for all the flack they take, I think they've really come a long way in the last decade. Um, You know, people say, well, Christians make a lot of bad films. Like, no one's denying that. So does a secular market. As a matter of fact, they make more bad films because there's more of them. They make more films and there's more bad films. So don't, you know, there's we make less films. Yeah, there's some bad films, but... We've come a long way in the last decade. The point being, though, that Christian films are a genre, so they have to hit certain points. Um, now, I think the, the, the issue for me in, in, in the Christian film industry or the Christian film market, so to speak, is I have one box I'm trying to check in my films, and that is fun. Mm-hmm. I want them to be fun. I want them to be entertaining, and that's the box I'm trying to check. Um, I don't try to force the message in. I know and I know guys and I like some of these guys I know personally, some I don't and some are great, great folks. And that's not the issue. It's just but I I don't want my films to basically be a three point sermon. And some people do that. And I think there's a place for that. And that's fine. Those are not the films I'm looking to make. Um, I feel like with church people, I feel like we didn't have to shoehorn the message in because the it was dealing with the church culture. And it was dealing with the issue of the gospel itself, so the message was just built into the film itself, mm-hmm. and we didn't have to force it in anyway, anywhere. So it was just it was it's there. Uh, I think that the film does have a message, and I and I think it's a strong message. But I didn't feel like we had to force it in. Right. It's just there, and I think to me that's even the the film that Brad and I are or the script that Brad and I are working on, the Revenge of Adam and Eve. Because it's dealing with Adam and Eve and the sanctity of marriage. It's just built in. Yeah. We don't have to shoehorn it in there. We, we know the theme. And, uh, and even uh, so, you know, my, my friends, that I've been friends with these guys for over 20 years. Darren Bone Hampton, and Leland Clausen. We've been friends for over 20 years. Stand-ups, always, you know, we're all Christian stand-ups. So first of the year, with all the Zoom stuff going, I said, why don't we write a screenplay together? And so long story short, we ended up, you know, I think it took us about three months. We met once a week, uh, spent about three or four hours together on Zoom. And uh, we wrote a screenplay together. And it's just and our focus was to really just write a family screwball comedy. Mm-hmm. And now we have and, and and I think Darren said this. Let's see what theme emerges. And because, you know, we wrote it for ourselves. So all four of us, if we get it produced, we'll, we'll play in it. Well, star starring it together. So we're in every scene together. And oddly enough, the theme that emerges is friendship. Yeah. So we didn't have to shoehorn it in. It emerges. So we emphasize it. But again, it's really just a, a you know, a funny comedy and it has a little point to make, but because, and I, I think when you, when you take a, uh, when, when the setting itself deals with the Christian subculture then your message is built in. You don't right. have to force it in there, and you can just emphasize it um, right. at certain points. But uh, I don't know what th- that got me on. But anyway, uh, no, that leads. Oh, I think the head. big point was what? What have I learned? But you know, I think the, the beats, and I didn't yeah. even finish answering your question. Yeah. Blair. <laughs> so I do want to answer this though. And initially, when I would write it, you know, a screenplay, what you have is if you have too many similar beats. If you begin the scene positively and end negatively. And the next scene begins positively and ends negatively. And you do that several times in a row. If you ever have someone read your screenplay and say, you know, this this segment seemed flat. What they're really saying is it was the same, same, same. And that's what the story grid really helps you analyze each scene. What's the point of this scene? And... If your last scene ended up positive and ended up negative, then maybe start this one negative, end up positive, and then have a positive, positive, or a negative, negative. But have your scenes vary enough in the emotional content from beginning to end where you're taking people, again, on this up and down journey rather than just if you do positive, negative, positive, negative, positive, negative, they, they might not be able to express it, um, but what they're going to feel is same, 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 same. And right. that's what people mean when they say it feels flat. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing or the biggest thing I've learned writing 10 screenplays now is, is analyzing each scene and going, okay, how's this, how's the flow going? Did that last one
1: end up pot, you know, make sure I'm varying it enough. Right. Yeah. Cause every, especially Christian films, but every film is usually about a character transformation. They go from this point to this point and, not in real life in any case do we start in a positive situation and that, like not every phone call starts that way no right. transformation is going to start that there. there's going to be parts where you think you got it and then boom somebody knocks you right back down to square one and yeah. a new character comes in to kind of take you to the next level there's all those little things that are in there so yeah, yeah yeah story grid sounds like something definitely worth checking out it's really good so my manager at the time
0: back when i had a career i cared about got me a uh meeting with sony Firm. And this guy's still over there, a guy named Josh Nadler, great guy. But um, so I basically, you know, I pitched him this idea. They wanted to see it. So I, I hadn't finished the script at the time. I didn't tell them that. But I went home and finished the script and I sent it off to Josh. And he called me up and he gave me notes on it. Now, I don't know if this is standard. I don't think it is, but he did this five times. It's like I do a rewrite, send it to him. He'd call me up, give me notes on the phone. And it was like, what a great guy. And so the last time he did this, he said, what your story needs right now is a big idea to bring all the characters together. I was like, wow. Okay. A big idea. Uh, you know, I'm not sure what I'm looking for. Just it's a big idea. So I just had my antennas up and a friend of mine who was a church planter. He's one of my best friends at the time. Uh, he called me up and he said, you're not going to believe what this mega church that we've all heard of is doing for good Friday. I'm like, well, what are they doing? Cause they're actually crucifying someone. Like there's no way. Cause I'm looking at their social media right now. So I go check out their social media page. Well, what happened is that they weren't actually crucifying someone, but they were having a passion play, but it was going to be so realistic that they had all kinds of warnings uh, about the blood and if you're you're squeamish and et cetera. But what occurred to me is that because so many American pastors had done such crazy things to attract people to church in the evangelical church culture that for a second and I, or for a second, my friend and I actually believed that an American evangelical church would actually crucify someone on a Good Friday. And I'm like, there's my big idea. And because it's satirical in nature, and that's really what, you know, was a comedy. So we really started dealing with that idea. And it was coinciding with what I was learning about the gospel itself. So it was really coinciding with my viewpoint, because uh, as I grew in my understanding of the gospel, it really it saved my Christian life, I will say that, you know, because I came from a perspective theologically where you, I thought you could lose your salvation, and, uh, and I fell away for a decade with that theology, and when I came back, you know, it's like my, you know, really it was a renewal of learning what the gospel itself was and who Christ was, what he actually did, and learning how, what a horrible theology that is, not just because you can lose your salvation, but what it says about Christ, right. which says he's not enough. His blood was not enough. You got to help him out. So you got to bring your own works, your own righteousness. You got to bring all that to the table to help Jesus out to save you. And that's really what that, that theology does. It's a horrible theology because it says Jesus is not enough. But bringing all that to the table, we really had, that's really what we were dealing with. The theme was, is the gospel enough? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's really what we were dealing with in the screenplay. So and once it, it, it is a comedy, but again, it's, it's satirical, but I, I tell people this all the time. You can only satirize what you love. Uh, you know, I love Jesus. I love the church. So it doesn't come across as mean because right. whenever you see a satire, a movie satire, and they don't love their subject matter, it feels mean Yeah, because it generally is. Right. So you can, you can see it, That's why and I've seen, you know, like there was a movie advertised just this last year. I can't remember the name of it, but. And it was dealing with the Christian subculture, but I'm going, I don't think these people who made this were Christians. Right. Because even the previews look mean. It doesn't look like you know, we love the church and we, we're just trying to get across the message the church church could since you know should consider. It was making fun in a way that wasn't
1: redemptive at all. Right. So and so uh so the pastor at this church where you shot the, the film well was-
0: we- now that so the guy was, was the an apprehensive.
1: Actor. Oh, okay. Uh,
0: yeah. Well, so here, no, so I never met the the actual pastor of the big church that we shot at because we shot at a mega church.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I'm not even know. I don't even know if they read the script. They just allowed us to shoot there. But I know that um, initially they were screening it. Uh, you know, like Stephen Baldwin uh, was screening it to some mega church pastors that he knew. Being Stephen Baldwin, you know, he's going to know some people and he does. <laughs> so, but it was interesting. Some of the feedback we were receiving is they felt like we were making fun of them. Uh, right. I go, so we weren't really making fun of them, but we were in one sense. I go, that's in one sense, there is a, um, I, I guess that's, I get. I, I saw it as good in the sense that the message was getting across.
1: Yeah. Well, that going you can always say it's... R- we're not making fun of you. We're making fun of people that have a church the size of you that don't get it. And then they're like, Oh, maybe we don't get it. Right. That's exactly it. And so, so
0: that was a little bit of the feedback initially. And so, uh, and I think maybe that's why it took a little while to get it released actually. So I don't know if that was why, but I did find that interesting that some people, you know, cause you know, like it's about a mega church and there's redemption in that mega church. So we've never been against mega church. I'm not against mega churches, but I do think, and, and the, the movie really doesn't deal with this issue, but it kind of plays into it uh, subtly. But, you know, in, the, in, in terms of the issue with the overall church today, and I've really grown in this myself in the last several years. But, you know, let's say there are only 400, well, there are about 400,000 churches in America. Now, let's say only half of those believe the Bible. And I think that's even being generous. So let's say 200,000 actually believe the Bible and preach the Bible. So you got 200,000 churches in America that believe the Bible. Only 1,000 of those are mega churches. So that leaves 199,000 churches where the average church size is 50 to 100 people, give or take. Yeah. But the problem is the mentality of the mega church dominates all the thinking for all the churches. And every church feels like they have to grow into a mega church when. They're not the norm. The norm is, if, if you're going to a church and there's 50 people, that's normal. That's actually normal. And statistically, uh, a church, you know, 10 churches of 100 people actually uh, bear more fruit than one church of 1,000. Uh, that's just statistically proven. So the, the issue I have is that we make, the, we wait, we make what's not normative, the megachurch, the norm and we all think we have to grow into that and I go that's really damaging to the body of Christ because it makes every small church feel like they have to do things differently to compete with the big mega churches even the people in the pews you know they're going we're only 50 people we've been going for 3 years clearly we're not we're not advancing clearly at the rate we should i mean but it it truly affects everyone in the body of Christ when just going you know god decides you, you want to try to reach people you want to plant the seeds preach the gospel god decides whether you're going to reach 10 or a thousand. That's up to him. That's a, just a biblical principle. So our goal again is, you know, we want to do everything the Bible tells us to do, preach faithfully, try to reach people, be in, you know, we want to be attractive. That's the whole thing. I'm not against the attractional church, but again, there is a tendency of mega churches because they're trying to appeal to such a wide body to not address certain issues. I go, sure. that's
1: not biblical.
0: You can't, you know, but there are big mega churches that do it right, you know. Yeah, I mean you know, there Matt there is Chandler, that- Matt Chandler's a mega church. I don't really think Matt Chandler, I mean, I haven't listened to Matt quite a few years now, but back in the day when, you know, Matt was more influential in my life, but uh, I listened to Matt and I never thought Matt was, you know, holding back anywhere. So I think yeah. there are mega churches that preach the truth and get it right. So it's not the issue of the mega church, but my issue is that mentality shouldn't dominate the whole church.
1: Right. And I, I see that too with a lot of churches that I've, I've attended or been to where they're afraid to scare anybody off because they're trying to get the numbers up. And so it's, it's always, they approach it as, we're going to introduce you to Jesus and then the rest is up to you in your small group and small groups are important. Yeah. But you know, if you're only getting, and let's face it, not everybody goes to a small group. So if they're just showing up on Sunday for an hour and and 40 minutes of that is preaching all on the surface level of let's be better people and just very surface stuff, it's not getting deep. So I'm with you, you know, a, a small church that goes, you know, it's not really how many people are in the church is how much of the church is in you day to day when you walk out of there, there you and you put it to the community. So, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, 100 people that are doing things and, and trying to do things the right way and learning and developing the relationship with Christ, that's way better than 10,000 where 60 of them. You know, right? But we're on the same page with that. Um, I, I think, too, there's an interesting thing today with... I mean, it, it's, it has seeped into every thing, whether it's a performance, a TV show, a movie, is... You know, and I know you speak on it sometimes. The, the cancel culture that's out there and how it's just—it's affecting people before they do an action. Some who are overly sensitive to being uh, taken out of context or whatever. Right. And and so it's it's watering down pre message what the message is in some aspects. I, and I get a lot of questions on this on the comedy side of things for my listeners too. Is is how do you stay true to what you believe and what you want to get across and and deal with that whether you're gonna Know you're going to get it, or if you're trying to avoid it a little bit. What's you know,
0: yeah? Well, no I mean, right it, answer. Yeah, I um, well, I think a big thing is understanding the culture. You got to understand the cultural waters we're living in, um, and I don't think we understand that very well. Uh, the book I recommend to people—it's uh, not an easy book to get through—but if you listen to it on audio, listen to it a few times. Um, but there's a book by Carl Truman uh, who I think is a, I think he's, well, I thought he was at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. Don't quote me on that, but he used to be wherever he's at now. He's a, he's a great thinker. And he wrote a book called the rise and triumph of the modern self. So it's not, it's not an easy title. It's not an easy book because it's the rise and triumph of the modern self. And he tells us, he really traces in a, in a really kind of a, broad overall viewpoint of how we arrived in a society where we can now say i'm a man trapped in a woman's body and it's not a mighty python joke anymore it's literally everyone takes it seriously and if you don't take that seriously then you're there's something wrong with your thinking is really what it is but he traces like we didn't just you don't get here overnight you don't get here in the last five years. You didn't get here just because of the, you know, 2015 or Burgerfeld decision. We got here over a period of several hundred years and the thinkers that ended up influencing how our culture thinks as a whole. And that's really important to understand the waters we're swimming in now. And I think it helps us be better communicators, but at least it helps us understand what the whole, why there are people now who don't think, you know, the restriction of freedom of speech is a bad thing. You know, it's like, I grew up in the, you know, I I was a grade schooler during the sixties. So I witnessed campus riots and stuff back then, but the whole, the whole emphasis back then was it's a, let us speak, don't censor us. And now it's just the opposite on campus. Shut these people up. So you're going, how do you get from there to here? So, uh, but this book really helps us understand the, what they, what he calls the social imaginary, which is the idea that, so that our culture itself has a, it's how people imagine uh, how things are, the the imagination of the culture out there and how generally people are thinking. And it shows us how we got here. And, and the church isn't, you know, we're not alone. It's like, we're not uh, we're, you know, having our minds renewed by scripture, but we're not, we're still a product of the times we're living in. So it even affects us. So I think that's a good place to start in understanding the times we're in because um, it's, it's, it's pretty disheartening. Sometimes yeah. I think that was a Christian, you know, yeah. that they're just certainly what we would consider self evident truths that um, are just not evident to people right and i think or people, there, there are at least people in denial of them because of yeah, the way culture's moving and thinking
1: yeah and you know i've really noticed this over the past couple of years and, and now it's like too late for me to notice it but I'm, I'm glad i finally kind of realized it is that a lot of times what people consider to be a small battle I'm like hey just let, let them have their thing let them do that there there's been thousands if not millions of those things that have led to this cultural shift oh, yeah. and it's okay to to stand up against what may appear to be a small battle, um, to some, to keep it from becoming this tsunami that you can't yeah. stop. Because all of a sudden, you're the wrong person surfing the wrong direction. Yeah,
0: no. Applying that to comedians, though, I mean, I think know, yeah, every comedian's different. I mean, not every comedian wants to be a, a socially conscious. They, they don't. Their their act is not about social commentary. Most comedians aren't. Most comedians right. just want to be funny. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You don't want to be funny to a, a broad group of people. Um, I think there are different places you can say more. I found comedies limiting because the more I found, the more you try to do social commentary as a comedian, the smaller your audience gets <laughs> Right. Uh, in terms of laughter, even because again, it's not as some people don't like that kind of humor. So you're losing those people right away. And then some of it, it's it's more thoughtful humor, so you're losing a lot of people there. Um, so it's it's just not as broad as talking about you know just observational stuff or you know like we got a, a three and a half year old who you know just last week told Siri on his mom you know and mom Siri mom's being my mom's being mean to me so he's talking to Siri telling on us now so I go there's a great comedy premise so I started you know doing a bit on that last week and that's just kind of a general. I go, uh, and even in my comedies, like my stage comedy. Um, uh, I don't try to be, you know, I'm not a socially conscious comedian in that sense, but in the, in the, in my novels and in Christian film, you can say much more because the expectation is different. Like I can write a satirical novel that people can find funny and you can make a point, but people expect more of that from a novel than they do a stand-up show. Now, I really res- I mean, I, I think to to be that socially conscious, cutting edge comedian, you really got to work hard because I think it's harder to be funny and uh, really speak into culture, too, because you're, if you're really speaking into culture from a place of truth, you have to tell culture things that doesn't want to hear. So, I mean, e- even secular comedians aren't really speaking truth to culture. I mean, give me a break. They're just they're, they're, they're just mimicking what culture wants to hear. Right. I mean, I, I don't know of a. I mean, give. I, I get so I'm, I'm irritated by what culture slaps itself on the back for. Like this guy is saying, who, "Who are you offending?" Besides, you know, a small minority of people that won't even listen to you. The people, right. the reason you're popular and the people love you is because you're saying exactly what they want to hear. You're not speaking truth to power. You're not speaking truth to culture. You're kidding yourself if you think you're doing that. And those probably and those are the kind of comedians who probably aren't listening to this show. but <laughs> right. I mean, give me a break if, if you know when people uh, say that about those comedians, they're not they're not. Right. otherwise you know, they like, wouldn't be popular.
1: Well, I don't want to keep it too long. you've been generous with your time. Um, I'm excited though, for anybody that hasn't seen the film yet, um, I don't think we gave away too much in, the, in a spoiler aspect today. I think there's a lot to go see in this and absolutely whether you're a Christian or not. Uh, you'll get it you'll see it I think there's a lot of stuff for both I think if you're uh if you're not Christian but you're wondering like how can a Christian movie be funny this is a great one to start with I hope it I hope it
0: uh, so churchpeoplefilm.com, you can actually see the trailer there and uh, the uh, the folks at uh, collide media put the trailer together and man they just uh, they did such a great job I mean I I don't know how you, it's like I'll channel surf a lot well not really channel surf but I'll go to i iMovie and I'll mm-hmm. look for a movie to watch and I'll watch I'll sit there and watch 30 minutes worth of trailers before I decide to watch something. And then it's like, ah, I'm not going to even watch anything now, but I watch a lot of trailers and I will say this holds up to any trailer I've seen. They really did a great job and captured the, they really captured what the movie's about without giving everything away. Um, and man, yeah, so churchpeoplefilm.com, you can see the trailer. And then it's
1: coming out on DVD and digital September 3rd. Right. And I believe you can sign up for an email blast to know when yeah. it's coming out and how to get it from when you go yeah. there. So and then people can check out thorramsey.com if they want to find out more about Thor and where, where he's at. His books are on there. So if you want to learn more about his books and good luck on the upcoming novel, Nine Months Away, there you it's go. The gestation period of a child. So uh, <laughs> I don't know if we should even announce it till after three months, but now we, we've let the cat out of the bag. There you go. It's out of the bag now. So Thor, it's been great catching up. It's been a, I, I guess, since we did bananas, I've seen you uh, even through this medium, but it's, it's good catching up. Glad you're doing well. And uh, if I can help get the word out on anything else, just let me know. Thanks, Rick. Really appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed the interview with Thor Ramsey. I know I did. Uh, Great catching up with him and just uh, glad he's got different types of success. You know, we can get pigeonholed sometimes as a comedian to just doing shows, but we definitely learned last year when those shows aren't happening, what else can you do? Well, maybe you get together with three or four friends, write a screenplay. How about that? All kinds of stuff going on in Thor's life. And I'm happy for him. Hey, if you want to check out the church people movie, Go to churchpeoplefilm.com. churchpeoplefilm.com. You can watch the trailer on there. And he's right. It's a great trailer. uh, I'm I'm in a movie that has a trailer, and I think ours is pretty good. But, man, I really liked how it kind of, especially now that I've seen Church People, how it really frames the movie up. So if you're curious about checking out, the trailer tells you everything you need without giving anything away. And, and if you're a student of film and you'd like to put these trailers together for your own projects, it's worth checking out. He, they really did a good job, as he said. You can find out more about Thor at ThorRamsey.com. It's T-H-O-R-R-A-M-S-E-Y.com. And uh, again, the movie comes out September 3rd on digital and DVD. Support Thor. Support uh, good programming. And uh, hopefully there'll be more of it. I know he's working on a couple of things right now. Again, thanks to Rhonda Corey for sponsoring the episode. I was about to say supporting, but sponsoring is the same. So I'm going to combine those two words and say support, support, supporting, so support, sponsoring, support, sponsor, port, port. I don't even know what I'm saying now. It's late. I got to get this thing done so I can give it to you. So I'm out. You guys stay safe out there and stay funny.
0: Thanks for listening to the School of Laughs podcast. If you'd like to hear more School of Laughs podcasts, you can find them on iTunes and Stitcher.com. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For information on upcoming live and online classes, visit schooloflaps.com. Until next time, stay tuned, stay focused, and stay money.